0: Okay, welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. I'd like to welcome our newest members, Ellie, who's from Facebook, Kimberly, Eric, Charles, Matt, Mike, Daniel, Patrick, Rick, Nicholas, Aaron, Kara, William, Jane, and Kathy. Kathy, you gave me a bad email address for your membership, so I need you to contact me so that way I can get you set up so you can get to the members-only material. And speaking of the members-only material, update your feeds, because the new Arthur episode is live. Not only that, but there's a multi-part St. Patrick series that I'm starting, and it should be live very soon as well. Okay, so, listener Eric wrote me this week about my use of the word apparently he's been so annoyed by this verbal tick that he's been counting, and I say anywhere between two and six times an episode. So Eric made me a challenge. If I can keep from saying for an entire podcast, you will become a member. Twice. Challenge accepted, sir. Second, listener David is a diehard fan of the Reds, as am I. As you may know, Liverpool has managed to get to the FA Cup final. So David says that if I give Liverpool a shout-out, he'll chant for the podcast at Wembley. I'll do you one better than a shout-out, David. I'll provide you with a chant to sing at Chelsea. Chelsea Chelsea (laughs) And incidentally, my use of that chant is probably the only way I'm ever going to get my father to listen to this podcast. Okay. So we're in the Dark Ages, and this is going to be a hell of a project. So let's talk about what we know, what we don't know, and why. I want you to be able to trust the stories I'm telling you, and so it's required that I let you know how unreliable damn near every source that we have from this period is. Now lately there's been a rash of people complaining about how this podcast includes speculation. Well if it bothered you in the days of Romano-Britannia, you're going to lose your minds over what we have coming. So, let's talk about our ignorance. The most important thing for us to know as we enter this period is that we know very little. Much of the scholarly work of this era involves carefully examining the rare sources we locate and trying to tease out minutiae. It's a situation that's fraught with peril, frankly, and it's an issue that we're going to be talking about in this episode. But it isn't just a scarcity of sources that we're dealing with and I'll be talking about that in a couple minutes, we also have a tremendous amount of bias that we need to overcome. What I mean by that is that we've been retelling stories for generations that we've just come to accept as true, regardless of whether or not they were factually based. Take the fall of the Western Roman Empire as an example. You're probably assuming that was a bad thing. And you wouldn't be alone. Until very recently, the Middle Ages were tainted by the assumption that the fall was a manifestly terrible event for Europe. A thought like that makes objectivity pretty hard to maintain, and consequently, much of the focus of study of that period was placed upon national origin myths and Cinderella stories rather than examining the cultural differences that occurred and whether or not these dark ages really were all that terrible for the people in the long run. So before we launch into a discussion of the Dark Ages and its sources, let's do what we can to exercise the assumption that this was a cultural decline and come at it with a fresh set of eyes. It might have ended up being a cultural decline, but we need to at least look at it with a clear vision. And we can't do that so long as Rome is up on a pedestal. So, Roman society was very much one of social stratification. And not just because of slaves of which there were quite a lot, but because Roman society was tied up in who you knew and how much money you had. For example, there's a Greek-Latin primer for kids from around the 4th century that speaks matter-of-factly of of a man who has been tortured, hung, flogged, and beaten while he denies his crime. Meanwhile, another man who has a large group of well-spoken patrons present with him is also accused. The first man is put to death while the man with a network of patrons is absolved of the crime. There are two inferences that can be drawn rather quickly here. The first is that violence by the judiciary was normal and to be expected. The second is that there were two tiers of justice, one for the rich and one for everybody else. Now, I don't mean to imply that if you were rich, you'd get off automatically. That wasn't the case. But patronage was crucial, and if you didn't have it, you could be in a great deal of trouble. To put things bluntly, Roman society was corrupt, which might shake some of the assumptions of Rome being enlightened. But I don't want to get into a long discussion of why Rome wasn't as wonderful as we might have assumed it was. After all, this is the British history podcast and not the Roman history podcast, but it is important because Rome does leave a substantial stamp upon the story we're telling here. And so before we leave this topic, there is something that is key to understanding Rome and its involvement in Britain that I don't think I highlighted well enough for you in prior episodes. Rome was its military. Sure, the ruling class were civilians, and that was fairly unique for the era, but the Roman state itself very much was focused upon its military. For example, the Roman military was significantly larger than its administration, and by the withdrawal of Rome from Britannia, there were somewhere between 400,000 and 600,000 soldiers within the military. That's a hell of a lot of men. Keep in mind that they also had to keep them fed, paid, and equipped, and that would have been basically a full-time occupation for the empire. Now certainly, the logistics required to do so also helped keep the Roman cities fed, So there were happy side effects. The roads were definitely useful, but there was still a tremendous amount of work that was required to keep this military going. It's been argued that as much as half of the imperial budget was allocated to the army. That's how big this thing was. I mean, that's a lot of money and a lot of resources. So of course, we're talking about a lot of taxes. So that brings us to the cities. The economic and political world of Rome was focused largely upon the cities. Consequently, living in a city was a fairly expensive prospect, with city councilors being turned into essentially glorified tax collectors. And as things got worse, and Rome's need for military support, defensive construction, and rebuilding grew, the tax burden might have also led to a certain level of urban abandonment, which might explain why we saw villas pop up, and then an eventual flight from the cities in Britannia. And that brings us back to the corruption we were speaking about earlier. Those with means, or social clout, could buy immunity from these high taxes we've been talking about, all the while making the tax collectors also quite rich. But someone would need to pay for the soldiers. Someone would need to ensure that the new wall that was being built would continue to be built and be paid for. And those without social standing, or wealth to buy favors, probably found themselves being asked to give more than their fair share. In fact, the issues of judicial corruption and economic oppression of the poor were common themes amongst religious critics of the time, so we can be pretty sure that this did happen fairly regularly. And of course, all of this corruption led to a fairly predictable conclusion. A massive gap between the rich and the poor, and a massive portion of the population being peasants, many of whom were legally tied to the land and virtually possessed no legal rights. The point of this isn't to dump all over Rome, or to make you hate Rome or Roman history. And to that end, I'm going to stop my account of the downsides of the empire. But I hope this quick recount, as well as the discussion that we had in the Cribs episode and earlier episodes, helped disabuse you of the incredibly prevalent bias that being part of Rome was good and not being part of Rome was bad. In the end, it was just another empire. It was a pretty impressive empire, but it was just another empire. And it wasn't that enlightened. And it had its downsides. So now that we've got that out of the way, let's talk about the Dark Ages. Specifically, let's talk about Dark Age's sources. To start with, much of what we know is reliant upon Gildas. Now, how much we can believe of this account is subject to much debate. But what he tells us was that there was a period where the island was under assault by the Picts and the Scots, who were the Irish. And the Roman army came in to repel them, and then told them to look to themselves for their own defense. And rather than defending themselves, the Romano-Britons engaged in debauchery. And during this period, the aristocratic Britons did pretty well. And then the ruling class of the Britons decided to import the Saxons to defend the eastern part of the province. Three ships came at first, but reinforcements later followed. And they were paid essentially as mercenaries. But there was a dispute over their payment, and in response, the Saxons went on a rampage. Following that, Ambrosius Aurelianus rose to power around this period, and won a number of victories against the Saxons, and then, at about 500, he fought the Battle of Mount Baden and repelled the Saxons from the island. But here's the thing. There aren't any dates, any precise locations, and he's even rather sparing with names, So it's hard to figure out what happened. And when we can figure out what he says happened, it's very hard to fact check. And actually, Gildas strikes me as a rather unreliable narrator. My favorite part of Gildas was that if he was alive today, he'd probably be one of those guys you see on the street corner with signs that say, repent, the end is nigh. Everywhere Gildas looked, he saw sin and iniquity, and he eagerly awaited divine retribution. So we should keep that in mind when we read his histories. He had an agenda. Well, all historians have agendas, but he certainly had one, and it probably affected his accuracy. For example, he writes of the mother of one of the five kings he hated, and he really hated these kings, but he wrote about one of the mothers of the five kings, and he called her a, quote, unclean lioness, end quote. Descriptions like that give you pause, don't they? I mean, that doesn't ring of objectivity, but I still think he has important things to share with us. But it's something to keep in mind when we read him. He had an agenda, and he might have been found on street corners shouting, only Sean Bean and aluminum foil can save you from the fires of hell. So he wasn't the best of secondary sources. And actually, let me explain primary versus secondary sources before we continue. A primary source is someone who directly saw something and writes about what he or she has seen. For example, Julius Caesar's diaries are a primary source. They might have been inaccurate. He might have been pumping himself up a little bit, but he qualifies as a primary source. A secondary source is someone who comes along, does a bunch of research, and then talks about events but didn't have any direct experience in what happened. And Gildas fits into this model. Now, historical research often comes from an analysis of primary and secondary sources as well as archaeological records. However, we're running into an issue with the post-Romano-British period. Specifically, we're lacking primary sources. So Gildas was around and was writing pretty soon afterwards, but he wasn't writing about things he directly saw. He was writing in the 6th century, so he couldn't have seen what happened in the early 5th century. He wasn't that old. And on that account alone, we need to be skeptical of him, even if he wasn't also making catty comments in the margins. Anyway... So we've got Gilda's writing as a biased secondary source for the early 5th century. But this isn't anything new when it comes to history. But as readers, we've actually gotten kind of lazy at spotting biases because many modern historians work to tell the story clearly and eliminate as many biases as possible, and make what biases remain clearly seen. Usually in the opening notes, you'll have the author speak about why he put the book together and what he hopes to accomplish. That wasn't the case in the period we're talking about here. We're not dealing with a history here. We're dealing with a story. Which, incidentally, is where the issue of literary tropes arise, and that's the third issue we're running into. And this one is easy to overlook and forget, but it's significant. Especially when we get into accounts of later secondary sources. Essentially, the trouble here is that rather than saying, hey, let me tell you this great historical story, we have sources massaging the facts for the sake of storytelling. So we need to read these things with a skeptical eye because it might not be a history. What we might be reading is historical fiction. But despite all that, Gildas' use of language and the story he tells, not to mention the evidence we have of Anglo-Saxon culture on the island, does leg credence to his tale. Basically, his moralizing aside, I think it's rather plausible that there was an Anglo-Saxon invasion, but something that we're going to be talking about for a little while are the particulars of that invasion, and as you might imagine, since this is the Dark Ages, the particulars are rather tough to identify. With that in mind, let's talk about our second major source, the Venerable Bede. Bede was living in the 7th and 8th century, and thus... For this, he is also a secondary source. And he's even farther removed. And on top of that, he also falls into the literary issues that Gildas does. And something that should raise an eyebrow here is the fact that Bede adds in details. But he doesn't say where these details came from. For example, he speaks about the British tyrant Vortigern and the Anglo-Saxon brothers who led the mercenaries, Hengist and Horsa. He also adds a location, Kent, and the date of their mutiny over the issue of payment, which he places at 449 and 450. But where did these dates come from? How does he know these facts? Now, it's possible that he was recording oral histories, and those oral histories remained accurate, and I really want to believe that. However, it's also quite possible that he was telling a good tale, and including things that would capture the attention of the readers and listeners. Now, we also have a 9th century account out of Wales attributed to Nennius. And this account has heavy overtones of romance. For example, it speaks of how Hengist's son went off to fight the Scots at the Wall, and how Hengist himself gained Kent by marrying his daughter to Vortigern. These overtones make the record somewhat hard to accept. On the other hand, it does somewhat reaffirm what we've already heard, but again, it's adding new details, which is rather shady, and it's coming after the other accounts. So what we might be seeing here is a retelling of the story over and over again, where people are adding in details and spicing things up. And then literate people come along and write down what they heard, or just write down what they've come to imagine. So there's a good chance that somewhere in there, there probably is the original story. And it probably does say what actually happened. But there's also a bunch of other stuff, so it's actually rather hard to find that original story. And there's a good chance that's exactly what's happened. Now some of you might be asking, what about the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle? Surely that can shed some light on this issue. Well, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle does reference Kent being held by the Germanic people. But it was also written starting in the late 9th century, so again... It's a secondary source, and a fairly largely removed one. I mean, we're talking about a gap of over 400 years, so it isn't a reliable source for this period. And a major problem for this source is that the Chronicle seems to add stories to the history that kind of raise questions. For example, it says that Portsmouth was named after Port and his two sons who came to Wessex via that area. And while it's true that sometimes the Anglo-Saxons would name locations after prominent people, it seems pretty unlikely that Portsmouth was named after some German named Port. It's much more likely to trace its origins to the Latin word portus, considering that it's a harbor. That isn't to say that the chronicle isn't useful, though. It is. But the earlier the entries are, the more we have to be skeptical and look for some sort of independent corroboration, if we can find it. Another problem with the Chronicle is that it generally ignores the early English kingdoms. And actually, it totally ignores London and Essex until 842, with the exception of two entries. So the Chronicle hardly provides a complete picture. Basically, there's a gigantic black hole for much of this period. And that's largely thanks to the fact that the Anglo-Saxons of the 5th century were illiterate. After all, this was prior to the invention of Reading Rainbow and the prominence of Geordie. And that makes keeping a written history rather tough. That, incidentally, is what makes putting together the much-discussed Anglo-Saxon cooking specials that I'm working on really difficult. It wasn't like they were leaving behind cookbooks. So what are we left with? Well, we have a few sources recording what was going on. We have references made by foreigners, such as Pope Gregory, that relate to a change in culture. We have laws on occasion, but those tell us less than you'd think. For example, they don't tell us the culture of the people living under those same laws. At least we can't be sure. At best, they tell us what the legislators thought and felt. I'm not sure if that was as clear as it could be. Take, for example, our own political institutions today. For my American listeners, take a look at Congress with their staggering 8% approval rating, which I suspect is just slightly higher than the approval rating of headlights. Do you think the laws that they pass accurately reflect American culture? The polls indicate that most people feel that Congress is disconnected from America. And that's something that very easily could have been the case in the Middle Ages as well. So we need to be cautious when we're drawing inferences from the laws that we find. These laws might not have reflected the values of the peasants whatsoever. Furthermore, the language used in those legal documents might not be as helpful as we wish it was. Again, we can look at our modern time for a parallel. Sit down sometime and have a look at a bill. Look at the language that was used, and see if it reflects the sort of culture and common parlance that we have in our day-to-day lives. People call it legalese for a reason. So these laws are helpful in a certain way, but they aren't the cultural window we wish they were. They're not going to tell us exactly what the values of the people were, nor are they going to be able to tell us the way they spoke to each other. This was probably highly stylized writing. Now, one thing that we have that is sometimes overlooked is the fact that we have stories, which can actually illuminate matters for us a great deal. For example, we can learn about the aristocratic values of England through the heroic poem, Beowulf. Of course, we run into the issue of whether or not the story relates to the values of the storyteller rather than the culture, same problem that we run into with laws. But I think it's a little safer than the reliance on laws because the storyteller is coming up with something that not only he or she can relate to, but that the audience can relate to as well. There needs to be a strong line of communication and a connection for the story to survive and be retold by others. This, incidentally, is why I place an emphasis on Celtic myths and why poems like Beowulf are so important in our analysis of Anglo-Saxon culture. The point is that we must look at all sources available and do what we can to find little tidbits of information. But it's also important to remember where this information is coming from and what sorts of inferences are being drawn as a result. We just don't have a lot of written records to go on. But thankfully, the Anglo-Saxons were big on burying grave goods. So as far as archaeology goes, we've got a fair amount to rely upon. And we even have sites that might back up the written record. For example, there are statements in secondary sources that claim that East Anglia found its origins in a Germanic invasion. And those claims are strongly supported by the presence of Sutton Hoo. And considering that those same sources discuss Mercia and Essex and their Germanic rule, we're forced to look at those accounts a little more seriously. But the presence of archeological digs aren't without their own issues. Take coins, for example. Coins are much less common than they were during the Romano-British period, and they will remain that way for quite some time. And since we don't have coins to rely upon, we have to look at other methods of dating graves. Unfortunately, these methods aren't as reliable as we would like, so there are a number of arguments over the precise dates of individual graves. Inferences can be drawn, certainly, And archaeology is a wonderful tool, but there are issues. You might be able to figure out the floor plan of a building, what people ate, what they threw away. You might be able to determine where things came from and what technology they had access to, and all of that is very valuable. But archaeology tends to have a much harder time discerning the day-to-day lives of the people, their culture, and most importantly, continuity. And it's the study of continuity that's so interesting to me. But it's very difficult in this period. All of this makes this point in history pretty tough for us. But it also makes it very exciting because it's filled with mystery. So what I'm going to try and do is I'm going to do my best to tell you what might have happened and give you as full of an account of this period as I can. However, I want you to understand that we're in a situation that is nearly as dimly lit as prehistory, and it will stay that way for quite a long period of time, so we're going to be relying on potentially unreliable sources, but so long as you understand what we're getting into, I think it's going to be okay. Just don't be surprised if you hear a lot of maybe, or it could be, and perhaps. Also, when you read of alternate opinions of what might have happened in scholarly articles or books or whatever feel free to talk about them on the forum or on Facebook. This is a period that is still hotly debated, so there are going to be a variety of opinions on damn near everything. It's going to be fun. And I want you to keep in mind that this isn't a lecture, even though it sometimes feels like it when you're listening to me on your run or in the car or in the kitchen. It's a conversation. And these talks and the uncertainty that I highlight are there specifically to engage you and kickstart that atmosphere of discussion that I found so useful in university. So as we go forward, I really want to be able to talk to you about these things, and I'd like you to talk to me back about them. This is something that we're going to be exploring together as a group. There aren't a lot of absolute facts in this era. There's a lot of stuff to be debated, and I really hope that you engage me and engage the rest of the group in that debate. Now, next episode, I'm going to give you a forest view of what we have coming up, and that should be a lot of fun, and then we're going to get down into the nitty-gritty, because then we'll have an understanding of where the information comes from, and we're going to have an understanding of the general story that's being told. I'm going to be able to sit down, and I'm going to tell you these stories, and then we can discuss what we believe, what we don't believe, and that sort of thing. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Now, before I let you go, over on Facebook, we've been doing polls and stuff. And this week, I asked people how they discovered the podcast. And the best response I saw was from listener Michael Hawley. He said, quote, I searched through my podcast app on my Samsung. I needed to impress my English girlfriend. Which, of course, made me wonder if it worked. If, over a candlelit dinner, he said to her, Hey, baby, let me tell you about Pythias. Now, if you have a story about how you've used British history to impress a date, please share it with us at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to join us at facebook.com slash history and at the forums at thebritishhistorypodcast.com slash forum. It's fun. You'd like it. It's free. And people are starting to take note of your absence. I'm just saying. Seriously, though, it's pretty great. For example, member Haley just went to the British Museum specifically to take photos for us should head on over and take a look at what she saw and then stick around and see what else is up there it's worth it and if you're on the forums say hi to me also say hi to our two most active members chris and drewster they're good guys i think you'd like them in fact everyone on the forums and on our facebook community for that matter is really friendly you should join us and of course liverpool you'll never walk alone